0: Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place.
1: Here at Do Theology, you know, we take great care to keep doctrine in its place. Primary doctrines must not be treated like secondary doctrines and vice versa. Well, this really begins to beg the question, is rightly defining primary doctrine itself a primary issue? What are the appropriate tests of orthodoxy that we're allowed to apply to those who claim Christ or who teach in his name? Well, that is what we're going to talk about today. But first, we'll let you know this episode is sponsored by Cress Biblical Resources. You can go over to cressbiblical.com. A lot of great resources there available to you. One such resource that you can pick up is this book, Millennialism and the Age to Come, which is a premillennial critique of the two age model by Matthew Weimayer. If might you don't say, know
0: about Matthew Weimayer, where have you been?
1: True, Matthew Weimayer has become one of my favorite authors uh, over the last few years. Uh, I really appreciate the way he writes. Some of you listening to this are not premillennial, and so you're going to say, "Why would I want to ra- waste my time reading that book? I don't, I don't believe it." Blah blah blah. Well, here's why you ought to read this book. I'm going to read one of the endorsements from one Tom Schreiner, who is not premillennial. Tom Schreiner writes, Waymire has written an outstanding defense of premillennialism. His work is fair, charitable, thorough, and most importantly, based on careful scriptural exegesis. Clearly, there are excellent arguments on both sides of this issue, and the debate will almost certainly last until the second coming. In any case, premillennialists will be encouraged by this vigorous and scholarly defense of their reading, and all millennialists will need to interact with this impressive defense of premillennialism. If you are not premillennial, or if you are premillennial and you just want a better understanding of what premillennialism is and a, and a good critique of all millennialism, you really ought to pick up this book. And the good news right now is, with promo code DO THEOLOGY all lowercase DO space THEOLOGY at CrestBiblical.com, you can get forty percent off and free shipping on orders over $20. So head on over there, and we thank Cress for sponsoring this episode. And after the music, we'll get into our discussion.
0: Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? his view heretical if it isn't then there's no such thing as heresy it's not just a black and white issue there's an issue there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority angelic forces angelic
1: reinforcement <laughs>
0: i mean it's it's hard to even respond to that isn't it it's, it's mind-numbing it's blasphemous When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right, welcome back to Do Theology, and today, boy, we're we're going to talk about a very difficult issue. I think the first thing we need to say today is that this is an extremely difficult thing to discuss, concept to discuss, paradigm, however you want to describe it. When we begin to evaluate tests of orthodoxy and consider what is the proper test of orthodoxy that we can... Project upon or apply to other people to determine whether or not they are truly Christian or not by what they're teaching and what they're believing. Uh, it's it's very very difficult to know where the lines are, and so the question is: Do you? Does the Bible provide us a, a line very clearly? <laughs> Is it a test of orthodoxy itself to be able to distinguish between orthodoxy and non-orthodoxy? <laughs> uh, how are we to think through this? Well, we're gonna we're gonna jump into that today. We are often, just generally speaking, very confused about how a test of orthodoxy should be structured, and the terms primary and secondary get thrown around all the time. Mm-hmm. Qu- quite often, it's done in a lazy way that's just not very pretty. Uh, where there are no definitions. You just throw the term out. That's primary, or that's secondary, or that's tertiary, or that's not important, or I don't know. They're all essential, yeah. non-essential. Essential,
1: essential essential <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and it's usually not that helpful, is it?
1: Yeah, and we've talked about that at different points, about how yeah. we're not a big fan of some of the language that people use, which is why we've developed this system. But it, it, it reflects the challenging nature of, of having these conversations.
0: Right. And at the same time, we do believe it is possible to draw a line between orthodoxy and non-orthodoxy, between primary doctrine, which is orthodoxy, definitional to Christianity, and the rest of our beliefs that are not definitional to Christianity, that are still important, but important in their own realm. We believe it's possible to draw a line to separate those two. In fact, We've done it. <laughs> hey. If you go to theology dot com slash chart, you'll see our chart where we have outlined what is primary and what is secondary. We don't give exhaustive lists of definitions, but we or of uh, doctrines rather. Mm-hmm. But we do provide definitions of what is primary, what is secondary, just from a conceptual standpoint. How can you? say something is primary over and against a doctrine that is not primary we provide those definitions there
1: yeah so the question then flows out of that okay as we're looking at that we believe it's possible to make these distinctions we've done that it's in the chart well is this process itself is this identification of what is primary what is secondary is that itself a primary issue is this is that itself a test of orthodoxy Different, we, we know, And this is an important question, because as we interact with other believers, we interact with people, and people want to, from our chart's perspective, elevating secondary and tertiary things and bringing them up into the primary realm, people want to elevate dispensationalism. Hey, we're dispensational, but we're not trying to bring make dispensationalism a test of orthodoxy, where you're not a true believer if you are not dispensational, and same with covenant theology. There are people that want to elevate that, and
0: we're saying no. We need to not be doing that, it, right? Because if someone comes along and says, "Look, if you are not dispensational, then you are not really Christian," we would say to that person, "You might not be really Christian." <laughs> right? So that's the that's the problem here. They sure. have yeah they have Adding gotten to the gospel. Yes, yeah they've they've gotten their their importance of doctrine so out of place that they've misdefined, wrongly defined the faith itself by mm. elevating something secondary to the point of definitional to the faith and then at that point we kind of we do have two different faiths we don't kind of have two different faiths we do have two different faiths yeah we have one that says the this is the foundation of christianity and another that says this is the foundation of christianity and those are two different foundations even when it's somebody who believes something that we believe just elevates it to the place of definitional
1: right and the same is so that so dispensationalism, covenant theology, those we would say are secondary issues. Well, there's the issues in that third column, the wisdom column, conscience issues, Bible translations, or what holidays we are or are not going to observe, et cetera. If we elevate those things, are things that are of practice, things of our perhaps part of our culture or part of our upbringing or part of our just personal preferences. And we make those tests of orthodoxy. Well, you're not really a real Christian unless Mm -hmm. you do things the way I do things in this area. Again, we're adding to the gospel at this point. We're making that a test when Scripture nowhere makes that a test. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So this is an important conversation.
0: And as we start to develop a solution here, hopefully, uh, again, we're saying we're not going to give a perfect answer. We're never going to arrive at a perfect answer in this life, I don't think. Kind of like our last episode, we said something yeah. of the same <laughs> things. Uh, we, we can at least start to put some biblical uh, principles to this. We can start getting our bearings a little bit from Scripture itself. And I think it might be most helpful to start with those third column issues that get elevated to primary. I think those are a little more uh, simple in terms of diagnosing what the issue is there. And we do have a lot more biblical data Mm -hmm. on how to respond when someone elevates holidays or something like that to the level of primary. So we'll, we'll start with putting knowledge in its place, so to speak, when discussing the elevation of third column issues to the primary uh, column. And I'd like for us to start in first Corinthians. I've been preaching through first Corinthians. So this, you know, The situation in Corinth is just on my mind a lot these days. We've been in the book for a year and a half, more than a year and a half. And there were those in Corinth who were bothered by things they didn't have to be bothered by regarding meat that was offered to idols, animals that were offered to idols, and they were killed, and their meat was then eaten on the temple grounds or sold in a meat market afterwards. And in 1 Corinthians 8, we have these third-column opinion-type issues regarding the meat brought to light in a very interesting way in 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13. And I think it might be best just to read the passage, don't you, Ken?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: You want to do that or you want me to do that?
1: Yeah, I've got it open. Okay, go ahead. Uh, You want to start with verse 7?
0: Yeah, so Paul's talking about the knowledge that mature believers have that demons aren't, or that demons are real. Other gods are not real, and so these animals that have been sacrificed to other gods, well, other gods aren't real. And so, um, look, the meat, what happens to the meat afterwards, if you eat it or not, you've got knowledge. You know that that's just meat. You can eat it. But there are others who are lacking in knowledge, and that's what Paul's picking up on.
1: Verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not be condemned, will not condemn us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience if he is weak be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat. I just messed up that sentence. I will never eat meat again, (laughs) so I will not cause my brother to
0: stumble. Okay, so this is really interesting, because you've got people in Corinth who are drawing a line with this meat that had come from an animal that was sacrificed to an idol, an idol that doesn't really exist. It's just a part of pagan worship. Those idols aren't even real. But they are saying, look, we should not be eating that meat as Christians. Their consciences were very sensitive to that. And in a sense, they were the weaker brothers. So they're saying, look, we shouldn't engage in that activity as Christians, eating meat that comes from an animal that was sacrificed to an idol. And Paul could have easily said, they're wrong. We'll, we'll just inform them of what's true, and then we can all move on and eat whatever we want. But that's not the route Paul took,
1: is it? No. <laughs> in fact, in, in in some ways, he he did say they're wrong, right? Where he talks yeah. about the—he he, defi- he defines them as their conscience is weak, right? And And he says that we know there is no such thing as— an idol. Like they're there it's not actually a real thing. Mm-hmm. And yet the solution is not just more education, but it's seeking to work with love towards
0: our brothers. And to protect their consciences just as they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, if you they have weak consciences, but if you go off and do this, if you eat this meat in front of them, if you do this activity and they see you their weak conscience would become defiled and they would act against their conscience because they're strengthened by seeing you doing it to just join you perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then they're going against their conscience. And even though their conscience is weak and it doesn't have to be weak, that's what they are. And so instead of prompting them to go against their conscience, you should protect them. Don't wound them. Mm -hmm. It says don't wound their conscience, which means to beat up to black and blue. Don't do that. Don't through your knowledge, ruin your brother which is very strong language. He's saying that instead, love, love your brother. Mm -hmm. So that's a very important place for us to start when we think about those who are elevating third column issues because of their conscience to the primary doctrine column. And we're going to talk in a moment about should these people be imposing their consciences on others? We'll talk about that. But where we start with this whole issue is loving them, Mm -hmm. not trying to change their conscience. Right. Right. And we often don't start there, do we? <laughs> no. Well, that, we want to be right. And we want them to be right with us. Yes. How dare they? Well, in, in chapter ten of First Corinthians, he moves on from can, this Oh, go ahead.
1: Can I just take a moment just to say we're we are not saying never engage these individuals and try to change their mind on those things? Yeah. Right? That's it, it, we're not going that far. Yep. But it's a posture of love as we interact with them, not beating them over the head and, either, you know, oh, you weak faith, whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, it's, it's a posture of love even as we seek to strengthen them.
0: Totally. Yeah, there's a good reason why two of us do this show, right? That's a great point, Ken. We're just saying that our first instinct must be love. Mm-hmm. You can have, following that, you can have great conversations about, about these things if they're wanting to discuss them. You know, if they don't want to discuss them, there's not much you can do. But if, if they're willing to talk, go ahead, talk. Yeah. But your first instinct must be protecting them in love. Yes. Which so often is not the case for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, this is a longer section. We probably don't want to read the whole thing here. But verses 23 to 33, Paul is talking about, the meat that was sold in markets. So now we're, we're leaving the context of the temple courts from chapter eight and talking about meat sold in the market that you take back to your house and prepare. And he actually gives the scenario of you're invited by an unbeliever to eat at the table, uh, his table and you're brought in. And he says, don't even ask questions for conscience's sake. So, not not your conscience, but anyone else's conscience, because there might be people around the table with you who are really sensitive to this idea that this meat came from an animal that was offered to an idol. And it says in verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. Why is this person saying this? Well, because this person has a sensitivity toward this subject. And if anyone's bringing it up as, hey, this is meat that was offered to idols, well, just don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake, his conscience, for the sake of his conscience, just abstain. So you have the same idea here of instead of just pressing against his conscience and saying, well, that stinks to be you, more meat for me, double (laughs) double portion for me, you're instead to abstain with him out of love, which is just, again, not our natural instinct on these Mm -hmm. things.
1: Yeah, so often we want to turn our liberty into a weapon. Mm-hmm. or or a um it's a point it becomes a point of pride rather than the point of humility that Paul the Christian liberty does not exist for me it exists for you i'm free to abstain not oh yes i'm free to do all these things because i have liberty in christ yeah yeah i have freedom to not
0: yes yeah paul goes on to say Our goal here, verse 32 of chapter 10, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Whether you're dealing with unbelieving neighbors in your life or fellow believers in the church, your goal is to give no offense to other people. And he wraps it up by saying, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. And this harkens back to chapter 9 when Paul was saying, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to those without the law I became Mm -hmm. one without the law, and to the weak I became as one who is weak. I think he's actually talking about weak Christians there. There's some just debate on who he's speaking of when he says the weak. But I think verse 32 clarifies. Whether it's Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, the weak brothers in the church of God, his goal is to not give any offense. His instruction isn't, teach them not to be offended. His instruction is don't offend them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we have these, you know, from these texts, it's clear that there is, that there are third, what we would identify as these third column issues that are bound by conscience Mm -hmm. and the instruction about how we think about those things is so critical for how we engage one another on these issues. Again, that whole posture of love, has to be the beginning point. Yes.
0: Can't skip that. A couple more uh, scenarios from the early church, both in the book of Acts, one in Acts 15 and one in Acts 21. In Acts 15, you have the Jerusalem council. You want to give just a brief background on what the Jerusalem council was about? Just a really high level view.
1: Yeah. So uh, there's a, the gospel is going out, and now Gentiles are being saved, people who are not a part of the Jewish community, and there are individuals who grew up within the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish lifestyle, that they're still seeking to observe. There are certain things that have just been ingrained into them, like, hey, this is, we observe the law of Moses. This is what keeps us clean. And now we have these other individuals who are believing in Christ. Well, how much of our Jewish culture do they need to abide by? Is, is a lot of uh, what, what's coming into play. Because it's not just Jewish culture, they're viewing it religiously. And so do they need to abstain from meat-sacrificed idols? Do they need to uh, abstain from these other things? And so they need they, this council got together to try to hash out these issues. How much do the Gentile believers who genuinely believe in Christ, how much do they need to observe? Mm-hmm. And so this council met together to discuss those things.
0: And again, it's one of those cases where the solution could have been Tell the Jews to chill out. The Gentiles can do what they can, what they want to do where grace allows it on this side of the gospel. There's nothing in the Old Testament law that is ceremonial that they have to observe. Like these Jews still hold on to. There's nothing that the Gentiles have to do. Let them be free. Jews just need to back off. But that's not quite the solution they came to. You've got James standing up, and this is verses 19 to 21. James kind of makes the final ruling here that they all agree with. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. That's kind of what I was just saying their solution could have been, and he could have just stopped right there. But he does go on and say, but that we write to them that they abstained from things contaminated by idols— (laughs) going into the first Corinthians eight and 10 scenario Mm -hmm. and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood for Moses from ancient generations has in every city, those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What do you make of the compromise they came to there is style number three. And it is not ideal. It's Office that. reference.
1: Oh, <laughs> I, uh, it went over my head there. Uh, so James is essentially saying, okay, you know, we got these Gentiles that, yeah, okay, these things are aspects of the law, and he's encouraging them to observe that for the sake of their Jewish brethren whose consciences are tied up with these things.
0: Yeah. It's, what's funny is they look so tough and religious, but they're actually the weaker brothers, the Jews, yeah. in this scenario.
1: I hadn't thought of it in those words, but that's exactly right. They are that, and so for the sake of them, this that that is what they uh, James is encouraging. Okay, let's let's encourage them to abstain from these things. Now, there's it's interesting. One of the things in this list is legitimate. Of yeah, nobody should do this, regardless of Jew or Gentile. The issue of fornication,
0: right? There, I think there is some dispute as to whether he means by fornication there just general all pornea that of course Christians are to morally abstain from, or if it's something more specific uh, to that culture at that time, but I can't I can't remember the arguments exactly okay. but
1: yeah but in either case the the rest of these things are things that are issues of the law and mm-hmm. and as the as the Jews who had been how they view these things so religiously, there's freedom in Christ on these that matters as we just talked about from first Corinthians. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're encouraged to abstain for the sake of the Jews.
0: (laughs) To sacrificially love the Jews by forfeiting their rights to these things. That's pretty interesting. The Gentiles were learning mature love right from the get-go. Acts 21 is the other one. And this one, I think, is even more interesting Because this is Paul. This isn't instruction that was given to Gentiles or Jews as a whole. This is something that Paul did specifically to sacrificially love his Jewish brothers. And this is verses 18 to 26 in Acts 21. I think an often forgotten scene in conversations like this. So in this case, I think it would be good to read the whole passage. Do you want to do that, Ken? Sure.
1: Acts 21, verses 18 through 26 and the following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it they began glorifying God and they said to him, You see brother how many thousand, thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all and they are all zealous for the law. And they and they have been told about you. You are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore,
0: do this that we tell you. Okay, we could stop right there and just say given the scenario, you've got believing Jews who are <laughs> zealous for the law, and you've got Paul coming in teaching freedom in Christ. Right there, James could have made the decision. How about you and I, Paul, we'll we'll get these Jews together and we'll set them straight? That could have been the solution, right? But that's not a solution.
1: No. He says, no, I lost my place. Uh, what is to be done, therefore do this that we tell you, we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself among, along with them. Now, this is, again, the Jewish ritual cleansing process. And pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Hmm. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men... And the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one
0: of them. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, being a Jew, and of course the people there knowing who Paul is and knowing his Jewish background, would expect him to continue to be zealous for the law with them. At this time, they see the Gentiles and they say, okay, we came to our compromise with the Gentiles. They're to you know, abstain from these four things, but you, Paul, you're not a Gentile. You should be zealous for the law right along with us. And it, again, it could have been said, well, Hey guys, well, let's wait a second. Let's talk about the proper place of the law in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. That, let's write a book about it. Paul and James, we'll sell it. And you know, we'll publish it through Zondervan and yada, yada, yada. No longer no. under law. Yes. But, under but instead, Paul says to James's advice, he says, okay, This was James's idea, Paul agreed to it, and he goes with these men, and he goes through the purifying ritual, Jewish purifying ritual, to show that there's no hard feelings against the law, and that he's solid with his Jewish brothers who are saved, because James says they have believed, but they're still zealous for the law. What an interesting solution to that, not the solution we would typically jump to.
1: No, we want to stand for our rights and our liberties and our freedoms and perhaps time and a place for each of those things. Yeah. But in, but in this moment in their wisdom, they, they chose to use their liberty for the sake of others, which is what liberty is for.
0: And this really is an extreme act of humble love by Mm -hmm. Paul because he did not have to do that. And he had the authority as an apostle to correct them on the spot in However, God would inspire him to correct them in these issues, but he sacrificially, humbly loved them.
1: And this shows us that as we're talking about this issue of, okay, how do we think about the existence of our columns, and how do we think about, okay, you know, the the question that we raised at the beginning is keeping doctrine in its place, is that concept a primary issue, and how Paul engaged others who seemingly had doctrine out of place— right? They, they had doctrine in, in places where it yes ought not to have been. The posture was one of love and humility in interacting with others. And there's a time for education. There's a time yep. for teaching and instructing and encouraging and understanding the scriptures more accurately. But it began with that posture of love and humility towards others. So that's, that's what we're really wanting to stress with this early part.
0: As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, Yes, but love builds up, mm-hmm. and he was building up his brothers there. Uh, so now going from, to use our last uh, scripture passage for this section, going from the early part of Paul's ministry, now jumping to the last part of Paul's ministry, the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy 2, there were some things that uh, you wanted to point out from this passage.
1: Yeah, so in this context, um, we don't know specifically all the issues that perhaps were at play in the, in the background of what was going on, um, but Timothy apparently was dealing with some, uh, some troubled people within his congregation um, that were causing problems, and so he was writing to Timothy to encourage him to, on, on one hand, stand firm for the faith. Now, this is, again, as we a lot of our conversation leading up to this point has been in this third column. Some of the things we begin to touch on start drifting into these primary and secondary columns mm. and how we think about these things. And where Paul, as he's addressing people on tertiary issues, the posture is one, is one of love and humility and seeking to show deference to others. But there is a point where lines need to be drawn and where things are crossed that absolutely need to be addressed without mm-hmm. any equivocation, without any compromise on on these things. They have to be set in stone. But not everything is that way. And listen to kind of the, the, the contrast between what must be held firmly to and what there's, there's some room for not uh, getting caught up in these discussions. 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 14, Paul writes, Charge them before God not to fight about words. He says this is useless. So this does, it doesn't do any good. It, it only ruins the hearers. Down in verse 15, on the flip side, do your best to present yourself as one who is approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Okay, we are concerned about correct doctrine. We are concerned about what is what is true and what is accurate. But then he flips again in verse sixteen: avoid irreverent babble. All right. again, these things are they're they're not as important. Um, but then in verse nineteen, uh, God's firm foundation stands. So there is something that is. Clear, that is firm there that we grasp and hold on to. If we skip down to verse 23, we see him write, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know, they breed quarrels. There's some things that are just not even worth discussing. But then again, on the flip side, uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil. And then verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there is a point when conversations do need to be addressed and things that are incorrect need to be corrected and yet with gentleness. And so there's that kind of duality of going back and forth like, okay, some things are just not worth fighting over. Don't even bother.
0: He's going back and forth a lot, like g- grab onto this, let go of that, Gra- but wait, grab onto this, yes. but hey, hold on, wait, g- let go of that, but grab onto this over here, yeah. and, and we're, uh, wait a second, can you give us a chart that defines these topics? <laughs> yes. All right, I'll just make it myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. It's real tough. Yeah.
1: But there, there's the, the recognition of the principle at play there. There are things that are foundational to our faith. Mm-hmm. We don't waver on those things. We fight about those things. We correct people on those things. Mm-hmm. Even when we do that, we're supposed to do it with gentleness, right? There's that, that love, that humility has to be in play. But then there's other things just like, okay, you, we're, we're, I'm not going to fight you about that. Maybe we'll have a conversation about it, but I'm not, I'm not going there with you at yes. that level on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the big idea when it comes to conscience matters, sacrificially love people before you ever try to inform their conscience toward change. not not saying avoid informing their conscience toward change, but before that, sacrificially love them. Yes. Okay? Now, <clears throat> one quick note on, on that, though, before we move on. There is this concept of the tyranny of the weaker brother that R.C. Sproul has talked about. There's a sermon titled The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother, and he argues in that sermon that weaker brothers should not be in a position of leadership, that genuinely weaker brothers shouldn't hold positions of leadership because they will inevitably project their weak conscience onto Mm -hmm. those that they lead. And I think there's a pretty strong case to be made. Again, one of those places where do you draw the line on all that? It's tough, but it's totally true. Weaker brothers aren't allowed to roll in and call the shots. I, when I've preached through first Corinthians, I gave the example of, you know, we've got a coffee bar here in our lobby and we are in Utah Mormons aren't allowed to drink coffee there are lots of Mormons who leave Mormonism and become Christians who still don't drink coffee and inevitably there are going to be some who are going to actually have this weird conscience issue with coffee because of how they were raised. Mm. If one family comes in to our church and says I don't like the fact that you all drink coffee and have it in your building are we going to say "Oh, well let us serve you by taking all that away no we're not going to do that we're not, that's not something that we're gonna do. We're going to say, we understand <laughs> that your conscience is sensitive toward this, but if we were to conform to every single person's conscience who ever walked through our doors, we wouldn't be able to do anything hardly. Mm-hmm. So you just have to be really really shrewd in that area and it's, and it's difficult, but bottom line, weaker brothers aren't allowed to be tyrants with their weak consciences. Yeah.
1: But even as you address those individuals that there's that posture of love and concern, yep. like, okay, totally get where you're coming from. And we understand that this is X, Y, Z, but then seeking to inform, say, we're not saying you have to drink the coffee.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't drink yep.
1: the coffee if it bothers you.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and we, there are perhaps some modifications we could make in certain areas. But again, if if we just adapted to everyone's conscience... we would just be pulling our hair out going crazy because there's nothing we would be able to do. Right. So, all right. Now let's ease into the conversation. We've been talking a lot about third column tertiary opinions versus what's primary. Now let's ease into secondary versus primary where this gets a lot hairier, (laughs) nasty, hairy, difficult. Where do you draw the line between what is a primary doctrine and what is a secondary doctrine. We do not have as much biblical data on this concept between primary and secondary because church history plays such a big role in the mm-hmm. development of secondary doctrine. It just, over the course of time, God's church wrestled with a variety of issues, and you had a variety of expressions of those issues that led to secondary doctrines. These different councils,
1: so, different confessions yes. that were developed. yeah, Right.
0: So we just don't have the the same sort of biblical text on this as we do with the conscience matters. So let's try to jump in and make some sense of something to help us think through this better. Where do you want to, how do we want to start?
1: Well, I think even though we don't have as many of the clear texts that are, that just say it explicitly, we do think that there's a lot of texts that point implicitly to this concept, that there is a division between primary and secondary. There are some things that scripture speaks about certain things with a higher level of weight and importance that doesn't get assigned to other things. So there, there are doctrines that are true, but don't aren't assigned the level of weight. And I'll give an example. Oh,
0: oh, I know. I know a good example. Like how J.D. Greer says the Bible whispers about <laughs> sexual sin, but shouts about other sins. Is that what you mean?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I think Scripture uh, shouts about those sexual sins as well. Yeah, um, ask the residents of Sodom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Okay, that is not, I derailed you. <laughs> not what I'm referring to. But I am referring to texts that, that give certain level of weight to some matters. You think of 1 Corinthians 15, which you just preached through Jeremy, the importance of the resurrection. If Christ has mm-hmm. not been raised, you are still in your sins. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is clearly a big issue. Uh, the book of Second John, little epistle. A lot of people don't spend a lot of time in Second John, but we have this very strong statement in verse nine: Anyone who doesn't, who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Hmm. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Clearly, there's some body of truth some doctrine that is that is clear about the person and the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, that if you reject those things, you're rejecting the faith. You're rejecting mm-hmm. Christianity. Now, what exactly gets included with that <laughs> yeah. body of truth? Give me the parameters and yeah, the content that's now. That's right. <laughs> that's where things get a little bit hairy. But the concept is there, right? Where yeah, the, there is. are things that are crystal clear. Like, this is... True, and Mm -hmm. this is primary, and there's salvific weight placed upon these things. And then there's other things that are true, that are there in the text, that are not as—that weight isn't placed there. Yes. And with different hermeneutics, you may come to different conclusions about how those things ought to play out.
0: Paul doesn't say, if you don't get the timing right on when believers will be caught up together with Christ in the clouds, then you are still in your sins. Right. That verse just doesn't exist. Right. So, and and to add more confusion to this, there is the area or the, the concept of our own subjectivity. When it comes to our secondary beliefs... The more that we develop our convictions on these issues through reading scripture and being taught through books and and other teachers, the more it becomes clearer to us, these secondary issues. Like, a lot of people, I imagine, could relate in the area of Calvinism, Mm -hmm. where they they become—maybe they were saved, they were more Arminian-leaning, they become more Calvinistic, and then over time, it's like, wow, this is so clear. It's everywhere in scripture, everywhere, how could you ever deny this? And so it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer, and you often forget that, oh, at one time you denied it, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> i say a similar and, thing with baptism. Yeah. Believer's baptism, true.
1: to me, is just like, I don't... It, it's just super clear to me.
0: Mm-hmm. I get
1: how other people get to these other conclusions, but I don't see it in Scripture.
0: Yes. So, to kind of cut through that problem, then, what we... Say with our paradigm, what we teach, and our last episode touched on this too, is that there is such a thing as doctrinal clarity—the clarity of certain doctrines that that man is made in God's image and that he has fallen and sinful now because of Adam. That is a clear doctrine that Scripture provides us—not just clear words that we can understand on a page, but a, a doctrine of man. That aspect of our doctrine of man is clear. God has made that doctrine clear. But that doctrine is not determined to be clear based on some individually discerned clarity. Mm. This is something that we recognize as a body of Christians, as, as God's household. He has made it clear to his whole body that it, it is, of course, on an individual level. You read the Bible and, and the Holy Spirit teaches you, yes. But it's not just clear to you, like your timing of the rapture might be, right? Um, It's clear to all Christians, and that's a really important element in deciding and determining what is primary, what is orthodoxy, and what is outside of that. Is it clear to just you? Is it clear to just one section of Christianity? Or is it clear to all of Christianity? And that is a difficult subject, a conversation to have, but that's a vital aspect of the conversation.
1: And when we're talking about vital uh, clear to practically all of Christianity, we are talking about regenerate believers, right? There, yes. there are some people that might claim the name of Christ. And, and honestly, even how we define who is regenerate, kind of it gets all kind of tied into this whole issue, which makes the conversation just that much more challenging to articulate. Uh, but we're not talking about, oh, just everyone who's ever— claim the title of Christian or who's claimed to be a part of the church in church history because church history is admittedly messy and Very messy. there's a lot of a lot of bad things mixed in with all of church history. But when we can look back with, with more clear sight when we look, it's, it's, it's easy. We're looking back with, um, we're probably not looking back with 2020 vision. It'd be nice mm-hmm. if we could, no, we're not. <laughs> yeah. uh, but looking back, we can see, what thing, What has the church, again, regenerate believers, what have they embraced yes. consistently yeah. throughout church history?
0: It is, a, it is a presupposition of ours as Christians that God has a church. Yes. And that Jesus is building his church. We start with that presupposition. Now, that's really important in this conversation, because there will be people when you start having this conversation, more liberal-type people, are going to say... You can't say that there's any doctrine that all Christians have ever believed. They're just going to say no. I mean, it's, it's diverse at its core. And this is extremely similar to the discussion of canon, that this is how liberals argue against the canon of Scripture. Because they'll say, there's just no way. You can look back in history and say that the people of God ever recognized what was truly canon and what was not. There was just a bunch of different competing ideas and eventually your camp that you're part of now won out. And if some other camp would have won out, it's likely you would have been believing in a different canon today. That's their whole argument. Because there's not a presupposition of God is building his church Mm -hmm. and he has a purpose in everything that he's doing that is going to be fulfilled, it is going to come to fruition, and that he's powerful enough to cut through all of our human subjectivity to reveal certain things to us. So we reject the liberal mindset, we embrace the presupposition of what God is doing in the world and building his church, and that really frames this discussion in, in our camps.
1: Yeah, so when we see, okay, what constitutes primary doctrine, first and foremost— Again, we on our chart, we define it hermeneutically according to what the Scripture, te- what are the things that are so foundational and so crystal clear. They cannot be denied if we are approaching it with an understanding that Scripture is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And then when you do begin to look around, you see that, oh, hey, you know what? Uh, there are certain things that pretty well, all these Christians, they all agree on, belong in that category. Yep. So the, the, from there the the concept that we're talking about and that we're arguing for is keeping doctrine in its place a a primary issue itself that whole process when you look back at church history and see where people have identified these are the primary things of the faith, that that helps us understand a little bit of, okay, you know, this actually is an important concept. Mm-hmm. That, that this isn't something that we can just say, well, you know, whatever you think about these things, it's, it's right. fine. You can go wherever you want.
0: like <laughs> Whatever you want to say is definitional Christianity is definitional to Christianity.
1: You, you, just, you just have to believe something is.
0: Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, then at that point, we're in the postmodern, what's true for you is true for you craziness. Yeah. So and yet oh, go
1: ahead. at the same time, we do recognize that there are that, that there is some tension with these conversations and it is challenging. We're not saying that this is an easy process. Mm-hmm. It, there is tension. And so we do want to approach it again with that same humility and same posture of love, and yet also recognizing that this I think it's it is possible to have levels of clarity on these things.
0: So maybe uh, to help us visualize this, if you're in a place where you can close your eyes, maybe you want to close your eyes and imagine a spectrum in your mind of Christian beliefs and all the way to the left, you have the doctrines that all regenerate people for the last 2000 years have agreed on. And you can go just as basic as Jesus existed. (laughs) Well, just so you can start with the most basic. Okay. You have all these doctrines And we're not going to put a number to it, but there are multiple doctrines that all Christians for the last 2,000 years have believed, all truly regenerate people. As you move to the right, in your mind's eye, looking at this spectrum, there is more and more disagreement. It starts to—branches start to form off of this continuum. Well, where is the line as you move left to right? Where is the line to say, now we've crossed over into secondary doctrine? Mm Mm-hmm. Also, what's all the way on the left that all Christians have always agreed on for the last 2,000 years? And how did those doctrines get there? How did that happen? Now, we can't answer all of those questions, but we realize that this phenomenon exists. Yeah, It just exists. And we can't go into detail about here are all the nuts and bolts of how this operates. It just is. And where we draw that line to say, on the spectrum, now you've crossed over into secondary, that can be, you know, a a pretty subjective thing. Uh, We recognize God hasn't given us that line. Mm -hmm. We have to determine that for ourselves. We have our chart. Some people disagree with our chart. We're comfortable with it. Some people disagree with it. But it reveals there is some fuzziness on this. There's some subjectivity on this and it just is what it is but you have to draw the line somewhere you can't just pretend that there's not a line
1: and 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 when we say that it's a it's there is a degree of subjectivity we think we can make really great progress with this because we're using the scripture to be our guide and that's what yes. we believe is one of the things that sets our chart apart from some yes. other systems is that we have tried to identify based on what the scripture says and the clarity of the scripture itself what is crystal clear. Now, we're applying our lens to that and we're applying, we're we're looking at it and we're not pretending that we're completely unbiased observers of scriptures ourselves, but we're trying to do the best we can to identify what is what has that level of clarity. What what uh, text scripture places this level of of super importance to. Yes. And keep that in that column. And then when we branch out and start looking at these other things, well, okay, now we start see, seeing where well, where you land on that is going to depend on your hermeneutics. Uh, how you understand this is going to depend on, on how you read this particular text. Mm-hmm. Well, we think that this issue is pretty clear based on our hermeneutic, but we recognize other people come to different conclusions because the text isn't quite as clear. Again, this goes back to our last yeah. episode. It's not as clear as we would prefer it to be, whereas what's in the primary column is clear. So we we do think that there is that, that there is a way to, to draw that line, but we also recognize that it's not that, that we are fallen creatures, right? Like yes. we're we're pretty confident with our chart, mm-hmm. but with humility, we see okay. Like you mentioned, there are people that disagree with some of the finer points, but they still agree with the majority of it. Yeah, even right. the people that disagree, perhaps with like gender roles, we we mm-hmm. had that discussion not that long ago. So they yeah. still agree with if, the gospel.
0: And I would, I would rather someone disagree with our chart, but still have some sort of paradigm in their mind, mm. than just to throw it all out and go either you know nothing's primary, everything it's kind of laissez faire, everything's open to find your own you know foundation, right? Um, or elevate everything you believe and say, well, what I believe is all right, and so it's all primary, and you're kind of <laughs> overcorrecting and just saying. You know, all of my beliefs on baptism, on end times, on the sign gifts, on Calvinism, all of that's primary. And if you disagree with me on any of that, you're not really a Christian. Okay. Don't do either one of those things. Instead, work to develop your own paradigm because you have to have a line mm-hmm. between what is primary and what is secondary. Those realms exist. Yes. Figure out where the line is. We hope, and like like Ken said, we're we have a strong conviction about ours. That's why we have this podcast. But... No, oh, we want to help you. Either way, just figure out where that line is and it, go do the work yourself.
1: And I would say, too, that if, if you disagree with something on our chart, have biblical reasons for why you want to move it from one column to the other. Not just because you think or because your uh, tradition, your church tradition, places a high weight on something. No, I actually have like, oh, and then email us and tell us about that. But, but, hey, I think this ought not to be in this category and give us a biblical reason for why. Yeah. So I think, uh, I I do want to read this Titus passage because I think it's helpful as we think about the nature of primary doctrine. There is a line that's got to be drawn somewhere and we're willing to got to be willing to fight about those things. This is what Paul says to Titus in chapter three, verses eight and nine, or eight, it's actually eight through 11. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. Proper doctrine is the foundation for proper living. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So on the one hand, good foundational doctrine is profitable for people, And necessary for good works.
0: And you must insist upon them. And you
1: insist upon them. (laughs) On the other hand, these other things, foolish, controversy, uh, dissensions, quarrels about the law, these may be secondary or third column conscience issues. Fights about those things, it is unprofitable and worthless. And then the instruction for what to do, again, this this ties back to, is, is keeping doctrine in its place a primary issue? I think verse 10 gives us a a clue as to the answer to that question. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When we Mm. begin to get doctrine out of place and start trying to elevate secondary or tertiary things, and we really want to fight about those things, we're getting doctrine out of place Paul seems to be saying, hey, that's a, that's a primary thing. That person needs to be disciplined and put out of the church. That's a big deal. Mm. So we've got to recognize this, that this really is an important thing, and how we think about keeping doctrine in its place is critical for our personal lives and our own edification and how we engage with the body of believers.
0: Wow. And in every individual situation you encounter is going to have its own particular details that make it difficult to discern, okay, is this is this an issue where this person is uh, should be warned, and if he ignores a couple of warnings, I should have nothing to do with him? Or is this different? You know, I, it, it's so hard, because we Christians are going to argue. As long as there's a church, Christians will argue. Yes. <laughs> How's that for pessimism? <laughs> <clears throat> However, there is an antidote to a lot of the problems that ail us, and that would be the character trait of humility. (laughs) If we can all be humble and seek to love one another in humility, I believe that God, by His Spirit, is going to guide our steps right where He wants us to be, and we can be absolutely confident and rest in all of these doctrinal quagmires we find ourselves in. Mm. We can just rest that he's taking care of us. So be humble and seek to love each other and God'll take care of you.
1: Yeah. And we hope that we are approaching this conversation with that humility and and we we probably we do so imperfectly because we are also imperfect fallen human beings. And this is why we want to encourage our listeners that hey, you know, if if you think you can You know, one passage that we didn't reference was Acts 18 and 19, where Apollos was erred in in a particular area, and Priscilla and Aquila explained the way of God more accurately to him. If you think you can explain the way of God more accurately Mm -hmm. to us, hey, we're all ears. We're willing to hear that, especially as it relates to our chart and this paradigm that we've developed. We think it stands on firm biblical principles and biblical grounding, and we have good reasons for why things go where they go. But if you think you've got a, a biblical case for why we ought to think through something differently, we are willing to receive that and, and consider that, not saying we're going automatically going to change our minds, but we want to be open to that conversation.
0: Just keep it biblical. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, Wow. Okay, that was a heavy episode. The last two episodes have been uh, difficult concepts. I think uh, the next one is going to be a little bit lighter. You won't have to swim in as deep of waters, but hopefully just as applicable. And, yeah, if you've got any feedback for us, reach out to us at show at dotheology.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Reach out to us however you would like. We're still wanting people to leave voice messages. Uh, Get your voice on the show by leaving us a message, uh, by whatever means you want to get that to us. And we'd love to hear from you. And until next time, do theology. All right.